0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How much faith do you think you have? Is it enough faith or would you like a little bit more? You know, we're often told that religious belief is on the decline, that more and more people think of themselves as having no faith at all. Like Egypt, in Joseph's dream, churches are warned that they should do what they can to get ready for some long, lean years ahead, because as an enterprise, religion is kind of fading out. Now, all of that seems to be true, at least in a strictly anecdotal sense, but only if we think of religious belief only in the narrowest, most traditional terms. Because it seems to me that religious observance hasn't actually faded at all, it's just shifted to other sources of authority. As David Zoll wrote recently, the religious impulse has proven easier to rebrand than extinguish. We haven't quit it completely. For instance, while churches are emptying, belief in folklore is ticking up. A majority of people in Iceland claim to believe in hidden creatures like elves. And while you might blame that on Europeans, uh, in America, downloads of apps for our phones indicate that astrology is experiencing a revival of sorts. And about a third of people in Austria believe in the power of lucky charms. Not the, not the cereal. LAUGHTER um, All of this, of course, suggests that our hope for salvation, our desire for a kind of security, has not disappeared, but has just been transferred. And it's certainly not limited to just the most traditional understandings of what a religion might be. People seeking a way to make sense out of the world reach out and just try to find something. And they give their time and their money and their energy and attention to any number of things that seem to hold out hope for a life of transcendence, or peace, or safety, or some deeper meaning past just ourselves. Now, all of that probably makes a kind of intuitive sense to us. That's probably what you're doing here this morning, at least in some way. St. Augustine said that we have all been created with a desire to worship, and as a result, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That restlessness leads us to do all kinds of things to order our lives in some pattern that makes sense to us, to view life through a lens that helps things seem a little clearer. Call it religion or faith or a worldview, but there are very few people who just wake up in the morning and go about their day doing whatever they want in any given moment with no rhyme or reason. And that faith that you have comes to the forefront in times of difficulty, when life is not going as you might hope. And it's fair to assume then that Paul's faith was being tested as he wrote the second letter to Timothy that we read from this morning. Now, while he doesn't come out and say it as you and I might in this era of social media and oversharing, the apostle is in a bit of trouble. For a famous traveler, Paul's world has become very small. Captive as he was in the Roman, famous Roman prison known as the Maritime. He is underneath the streets of the city in a cell that you had to reach by being lowered in a basket through the roof. The room that Paul was kept in was probably formerly a large cistern for water. And it's been turned into a prison cell, conveniently or not, depending on your perspective, located right next to the city's sewer system. So this is a dark, damp, smelly place to be. But at some point, Paul must have asked for some paper and a quill. Because while he believes that he still is doing what God has called him to do, He also understands that in his chains, he's not a prisoner of Rome or Nero, but of Jesus Christ. And all that he was suffering was for the good of Christ's kingdom. You'll remember that suffering is part of Paul's call from the very beginning. He's blinded on the road to Damascus when he is made dependent on the help of others. He writes frequently about a thorn in his side that seems to indicate a kind of ongoing physical difficulty. And what's revealed in Paul's suffering is not just his deep personal faith and his integrity, but the remarkable power of Christ, able to work even through broken vessels and those kept in chains. You'll recall that in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord sends Ananias to Paul to pray for him to receive his sight, what Ananias hears is this. He says, The Lord said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that's coming true now in Paul's own life. Now, this stay in prison was never going to be a long one because the Romans did not keep prisoners for punishment. They were usually only held as they awaited execution. So Paul must have understood that his life and ministry are coming to a definitive end point. He's also suffered the loss of relationships, friends and followers who have stepped away as it becomes increasingly difficult for them to understand what Paul is doing as he refuses to confess to any of the crimes of which he is accused. It seems that his chains were a source of embarrassment for some people. Those especially painful friends who have been lost are those who he's considered to be close friends, companions in the way, So he writes to Timothy this second letter out of a place of understandable difficulty. Timothy, a young man who Paul discipled, who became truly his most faithful companion for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy's face is a source of joy for him. And it is also a family legacy gifted down the generations From his grandmother and his mother, there's a reminder there for those of us in older generations about how our faith can bear fruit in the lives of children and grandchildren. But Timothy is still young. And it is possible, Paul notes that Timothy, he writes about Timothy's tears because it seems that Timothy might have questions about whether or not Paul is the kind of guy he wants to be associated with. But the good news is that young people... As we know, in our wisdom, uh, young people have an abundance of sincerity to go with whatever other gifts they have. And that sincere faith that Timothy has is what Paul is writing to encourage. He tells the younger man to safeguard the gift of faith that he has received. To fan it into flame and to not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul, but to be full of love and self-control. If Paul is afraid of what's going to happen to him, he does not say it yet, but encourages Timothy to live into his highest calling, that thing he has been given by Christ, part of a longer and deeper story, the story that God began to tell before time itself, that continued with their shared faithful ancestors, and that Paul and Timothy are privileged to work for in their own lives. How can this possibly be? Go home tonight, take a cold shower, sit on the floor of your bathroom, don't turn the heat on, and just sit there and tell me how you feel, you who can get up and walk and take a shower and get cleaned up again. Paul has none of those options. He sees the world, though, with the eyes of faith. He's not focused on his gross current predicament or the failures of his relationships, or his pending death, but he sees that in all these things, God is working toward a greater purpose. Paul is suffering, as he says, because he's been appointed as a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher. And he's convinced that all of this is God's will, and has to be endured to fulfill God's purpose. And he is therefore able to urge Timothy to stay the course out of this great reserve of faith that he has, because none of what has happened to him is the result of bad luck or poor chance, but was ordained by the Lord that he has committed to serve. Now, it takes a great deal of faith to wrestle with suffering like that honestly, without either trying to justify or ignore the pain that comes. From such an experience. But in our suffering, God is not absent, and faith can still flourish, even if it is just a small seed in need of care. Paul has that kind of seed in him, that little mustard seed of faith that Jesus talks about in the gospel. Of course, this is not the only place where Jesus talks about the mustard seed, but this morning we'll focus on what he says in Luke. The mustard seed, as I am sure you have heard so many times, is the smallest seed certainly found in Israel. A tiny seed that grows into a large shrub. And if we have faith that is even that small, Jesus says that we're capable of incredible things because of the power of God working in and through us. But the more significant thing, I think, from Luke this morning is not that our faith gives us phenomenal cosmic powers, that you'll be able to walk around uprooting the shrubs that you don't like around the church building this morning, but that we are servants in the kingdom, and that when we are asked to serve, when we are called to do things for the Lord, we have to remember that in the grand scheme of God's work, our contribution may be as small as that mustard seed. But that will be good enough. Because we are partners, but we are not necessities. Recall what the Lord says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. If Jesus is trying to get people to sign up for work in this kingdom, he needs to work on his pitch. (laughs) But he wants to remind us that if we're working for the kingdom in search of our own glory, we're going to be bitterly disappointed with the rewards Because what we have to offer does not supplement the work of God. That work has already been accomplished. As that old hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all. And he is the one to whom we owe a debt. Not the other way around. And Christ has actually done everything that needs to be done. We cannot by our own power add anything or somehow hope to tack on our accomplishments to his. The servant does what he is commanded to do and should not expect any thanks. Those of you who have household chores that you assign to your children, I suspect this is the attitude that you take. As I am often reminded, when I was a child, doing chores was just the barest minimum contribution I could make to the functioning of the household, and I got no rewards apart from a roof over my head and a bed to sleep in. Paul is a servant of a kingdom, and he's not surprised that following Jesus is costing him a few things. I think that's probably why he wants Timothy to fan that gift of God into a flame within himself, because Timothy is going to need it, as we all do. He needs to build his faith up to a kind of blazing bonfire to be prepared for whatever cold buckets of water might get thrown on him by the world. Because no matter what we may accomplish for the sake of the kingdom, we are only servants. And we have only done the bare minimum when we fulfill our duty. But the good news is, that's all we have to do. All we have to do is do our best. As the famous German revivalist Count Nicholas Zizendorf said, all that we can do is preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. We're going to put that on a bumper sticker. Now, it seems morbid because we'd all like to be remembered fondly by somebody, but it's a much better thing to be remembered in the kingdom than in the passing world around us. And Paul, I think, knows this. He has faced and endured all things for the sake of the gospel. And so as he comes to the end of his life and the end of his ministry, he is not angry, but he has clarity. All that has come to pass has happened as it should. He may want to avoid suffering as we all do. He may not want to die, but he's not racked by grief and anger because everything that happened to him was for the sake of the kingdom. And the thriving of that kingdom was more than enough reward for him. It is the pleasure of the Lord that justifies his life's work. Now, serving Jesus like that takes some faith, especially because there are so many other ways of seeing the world around us that have a better marketing pitch than that. So many attractive options that promise wealth or power or prestige, while Jesus promises that those who follow him will have to take up their cross and probably die. It sounds like, that this might be a difficult way to live. Which maybe explains why all those other ways of being religious are looking so good lately. They require a little less faith. They're a little bit easier, at least on their face. But Paul, from his subterranean, damp little prison cell, says that the Holy Spirit is guarding the faith that has been deposited in Timothy and in each of us. And if we follow the teaching of the scriptures and the faith and love of Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, we have nothing at all to fear and no reason to be ashamed. We are steadily fed a diet in our world, a diet that reminds us that we don't know enough or have enough, that we could never be enough to satisfy anyone else. But while we may never be enough, Jesus surely is. And we are his servants. It's a wonderful thing to be reminded of when we struggle with our faith. Because the fact is, we we may not feel very faithful. But Jesus is. And we can rely on him to be faithful through every dark moment of our lives. Every struggle that we go through. Every long night when we just look for a little bit more light to shine. Jesus is always there with and for us. Enduring And teaching us to hope. Promising that we will not be abandoned, unworthy though we might feel. And all we have to do is have faith as big as that tiny little mustard seed. Faith that Christ is living and active and working in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves. If you have plenty of faith. If you feel like you have not quite enough If your cup feels empty or it's overflowing, if the promise of tomorrow brings joy or anxiety, it is the faithfulness of Jesus that we can all rely on. Like Paul and Timothy, we can trust that the service we offer, however big or small it might feel, is enough because it's offered to the one who has already done everything necessary on our behalf and our lives are held in his very faithful hands. Amen.